Welcome to this special edition of Talking Tax. I'm Rebecca Baker, Editor-at-Large for Bloomberg Tax. Today, we're talking about leadership in the tax profession. What does it mean to be a good leader as an in-house tax professional, a tax advisor who wants to make the tax functions of your clients better? How do you build a great team as a tax pro? Well, our guests today are going to help answer those questions. We have Todd Davis, who's the Executive Vice President and Senior Tax Counsel for Warner Brothers Discovery, the global media company that owns Warner Brothers Films and Television, Discovery Channel, HBO, Turner, CNN, on and on, to name a few. Jared Duncan is Vice President of Tax and Senior Tax Counsel at FTI Consulting, Inc., a publicly traded global business advisory firm that operates in 30 different countries. Jared recently wrote an insight for Bloomberg Tax exploring the in-house view of leadership and team building. And he invited Todd to join our discussion today. Todd, how do you know Jared? Oh, Jared and I started working together, oh, over 10 years ago. I was deciding whether to come join Discovery. I think somebody else was trying to recruit Jared away from Discovery, and uh, we we spoke on the phone and made a pact that I I would come to Discovery if he would stay there. And so he did, and I did, and we worked together for years after that. Jared? And I I would just say that I've always wanted a mentor that you could sit sit at their feet and learn and grow, and Todd was that mentor. And uh, for for the years we worked together, I, I learned directly from you, but mostly I learned just from observation. And so I had a chance to go to a, run a tax function at a, at a different company, and Todd, Todd actually encouraged it. And when I got there, I remembered the story of John F. Kennedy. On his first day in the Oval Office, he looks to his chief of staff and he says, now what? And the phone rang and he didn't have that question anymore. But the now what, whenever I get it, and I get it all the time, I think, how would Todd deal with this? And that has served me well. So thank you, Todd. You're too kind, but thank you. Todd, Warner Brothers Discovery is a huge multinational corporation. I mean, it's a household name. Um, Jared, you work for a smaller company, but it also has an international reach. And both of you are essentially the head of tax for your companies. How do each of you define the role of a global head of tax? And how can a smaller company be as effective as, say, a Warner Brothers with similar or smaller resources? Todd? Well, my role is really to facilitate the work of my partners and their teams and to make sure that the company understands what we're doing and supports what we're doing. And my job is to provide resources. Um, Also to make judgments about what we're going to do, what we shouldn't do. And I I guess I have a a list of priorities that I'm always focusing on when I do that. The, The first priority is to have really sound reporting and compliance functions with great processes and controls because everything we do as a function flows from that that function and and then flows back to it. The, the Another priority is to make sure that we have the very best people. I want to make sure that my partners are the best people that I know uh, in their areas and that their teams are as good as they can possibly be. And then from there, another the, my next priority is to make sure that we identify uh, tax reduction opportunities and deliver on them and we make sure that they're real and that they can withstand scrutiny. And then I guess that comes around to the, the beginning. My, my, my final priority is, pr- priority is to take all of that and communicate it or really translate it uh, for management and the board to make sure that they understand what we're doing and make sure that they support what we're doing. 
Good. Yeah, so I, I'm working at, at Discovery Warner Brothers, a you know, very big company to a company like FTI, which is smaller, but it's the same, similar tax issues, just less zeros. <laughs> okay. And I, we have to do the, these same four, four priorities. And we, what Todd had taught me is that you have to view this, these four priorities as, as a table with, with four legs. And if any of those legs are wobbly or falls off, you're not running the tax function. You don't, you don't deliver. So you know, running a smaller tax function, understanding these four priorities, which are the same, but also understanding that there, there's more on, 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 on the team to have to think through everything. So you could do the best tax planning reduction opportunity ideas. You come up with the best tax planning ideas. But if you don't deliver on them and communicate them, it, it's for nothing. And as Todd taught me, when you come up with a tax planning idea, you have to think through down to the 10K of what are the impacts before you actually pull the trigger. And so I, I think for people that are run, running a smaller tax function, these four priorities and just you know, there's just more on, on, on a smaller team to, to deliver on that. One of the challenges about tax is that so much of tax is ambiguous and it requires navigating in the gray. And so many of the C-suite, the CFOs, they want definitive answers. They want yes, they want no, they want this is happening, this isn't happening. And tax, it doesn't happen that way. So how do each of you handle sort of working in the gray and handling uncertainty with management, stakeholders, and even your own team? Jared, why don't you start? So, so I find that with ambiguity, if you can just define what it is, what's the driver of the ambiguity, that goes a long way to help solve it. So when I, whenever something is ambiguous, I say to my team, let's put it into one of three buckets. Is it ambiguous because there's a lack of human capacity? We just don't have the expertise or the experience to, to answer it. So there you, you want to call an advisor, maybe two, and get their, their expertise uh, or experience. Oftentimes, something's ambiguous because you're missing information. There's insufficient information. So in those cases, we just have to do some more fact-finding, and that might solve the ambiguity. But most times, unfortunately, with tax, it's inherently ambiguous. Something is either A or B. It's a complex of both, of A and B. And, and, and looking at that, digging into it and figuring out, is it more A, is it more B, and, and, and moving on. Todd, I'd love to hear your answer on this, but you know, one of the things with something that's inherently ambiguous, you can get an opinion that might say you're 60 or 70% right. But have you ever considered you know, using tax insurance as a way to, to deal yeah, with that? Yeah, um, I, I have. Um, and uh, I, haven't, I haven't done it, but I've thought about it. And I, I think tax insurance is relevant where the risks are really big. It's like any other kind of insurance, right? If, if, if you can't afford to lose, you know, tax insurance could be a way to sort of cap your losses, right? So you might have a deductible, you know, or you pay what you're, what you're willing to pay on something, but at least you take the really, really bad scenarios off the table. The, the scenario I looked at, it was so ambiguous and so unsure that we, we, we thought we might have a big refund coming. On the other hand, the government thought we owed a really big tax bill. Um, and I actually thought about sharing the potential for that refund with the insurer to help fund the premium, which which would have been interesting had we done that. But again, I think at the end of the, we ended up settling it very very favorably. But to, to get another point, I, I thought of about your your question, Rebecca, was was um, you know how to deal with ambigu- ambiguity and uncertainty. You know, I've seen time and time again in our profession. People sit around a conference room and talk them into talk themselves into things. Right? Mm-hmm. We all talk about well, this you know this should be the answer, and you know uh, the, you know I'm sure the facts are this, and you know if you really understand our business, this is this, and there's no one there opposing you. 
and it becomes very, very easy to fall into groupthink with people sitting around a conference table selling each other on, on one side of a story. And it's only when you find yourself with a really you know, formidable opponent who's really challenging you on every element of your, your case that you start to see the weaknesses. And, and I've actually, and I've done this recently, in some cases hired a litigator uh, to help us develop a position. So if, if we're looking at a planning transaction, you know, we need to make sure it's going to withstand scrutiny. We need to make sure the facts support the, the planning. And, you know, it's going to have to be supported in court. So what better person to, to, to anticipate what we'd have to show in court than somebody who does that for a living? That's a, that's a big step to hire somebody to do that. But if the stakes are big enough, I think it makes sense. Um, there are times, to, if you take a step back from that, where I'll have somebody just write an opposing brief. All right, we all think it's this, but can we have some really smart associate at our firm take the other view and write a brief against it and let me read that brief and let me just see what am, what am I in for if, if I get in, into litigation over this. With all these complexities, all these different functions and all the decisions you have to make, as global heads of tax, one of the biggest challenges that each of you has is finding and recruiting and retaining talent. Tell me a little bit about how each of you have waged the war for talent. Well, uh, first, it helps to work for a great company with lots of interesting issues to work on. So, so I do have that uh, advantage. Yeah. Look, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting market um, right now, and, and this works to, to our advantage, I guess. The, the market for tax talent is pretty hot. I think the supply-demand works in, in favor of us as employees, but maybe not as hire, hiring people. And convincing um, HR that tax people you know, are more expensive in many cases than other finance people, is, it's an education process that I've gone through um, to help them help me in terms of formulating offers for people. I, I think you also have to have a reputation. I mean, it just comes over years of, of running a function. You have to be, you know, sort of an honest, transparent, supportive, you know, manager. And I think you have to be somebody that people, you know, want to come, hopefully come work for and at least not be afraid to come work for. So if you hire the best people um, and you advocate for them, um, I, I think that I think that that's, uh, that's really important in terms of getting them in the door anyway. One of the challenges of running a tax department, though, a corporate tax department, is it's, it's sort of a closed system, right? It's not like a firm where it's up or out and everybody you just, you know, the new class this year, they move through the system and the, everybody just moves up automatically. In a, in a corporate function, you sort of have to wait, you know, for, for somebody to leave, um, somebody to retire. Maybe if you have an acquisition and you grow through that, uh, maybe, maybe you'll, you'll create some opportunity for people. One of the things we've done uh, to a degree is, is look at uh, job rotations and moving people um, into new roles, maybe geographic moves, just to try to keep people to feel like their career is progressing, even if they're not necessarily moving up in terms of title. At least they're filling out their resume, their, 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 their experience, and, and feel like they're learning something new. And, and that's, that's, I think, one way to try to deal with it. Jared, as, as a company that doesn't have the household name recognition of Warner Brothers, how does FTI wage this war of talent? Well, so, so Todd raises an incredible, excellent point, which is reputation. So you know, when Todd came to Discovery, the job that was, was recruiting me, 
the t- head of tax, I went to meet with her on a Friday. Mm-hmm. She sends me a note late Friday afternoon saying, you know, this was a good week. I think I might give the team the weekend off. Uh-huh. And, and, I, and I, I thought she was joking, <laughs> but she wasn't joking. <laughs> no, but, but how does FTI do it? So my strategy, this is going to sound bizarre and counterintuitive, but the more you tell someone, show someone that what they're working on makes them more marketable, the more likely they're going to stay. So I'm constantly checking with my team and saying, hey, this project you just worked on, this is going to give you these skills to be able to do, to do this. And, and what it comes down to is that you care. That you care, you're, you're constantly mentoring, and, it, and you care about their professional development, but equally you care about their per- personal development and give them those skills as well. On top of that is really checking with the team all the time to see that where they are with their life. So, you know, you could have someone who wants to be the next CEO or the next head of tax, and for that person, you manage them one way. Another person may want to go to their kids' soccer games every day at five. You manage that person a different way. You may have someone on your team who made a lot of money on Bitcoin and sold it in time, and that person, you, you know, you want to give them interesting work because they could walk at any time. But what's, what's really incredible is that someone could change day after day. So one day they could want to be the next CEO, and the next day they want to go see their kid's soccer match. So being in, in tune with what your team is looking at and, and wants goes a long way. So this model has been successful for us at FTI. We, ha- we have basically no turnover in the last four years uh, be- because of this. One of the questions I want to ask both of you is about how you prioritize. Because one of the great challenges for tax executives is prioritization. How do you manage and focus your team to understand what is necessary, what isn't necessary, what has to be done right now, and what can wait? Todd, we'll start with you. Well, that's certainly one of the most important roles that I have is setting those priorities. Um, in terms of what isn't necessary, you know, I think most people are so busy these days that you know they'll tend to raise their hand and say, you know, this this is not a priority. Um, I, I think. In terms of deciding what what people really should focus on, I guess I'd put it in a couple of categories. Um, for process improvements, when we do our goal setting at the beginning of every year, I really look for people to have as part of their goals some process improvement. If we're doing everything this year the same way we did it last year, something's wrong. There's always an opportunity to improve a process. And you know, that's just the way business is going. It's, it's always evolving. So, you know, looking for process improvements to help, you know, take out unnecessary work and focus on what's important. For planning, um, you know, I start with a country-by-country country schedule uh, of our book and cash amounts, rates, withholding taxes, reserves. Uh, I, I find that's very revealing and helps me see, you know, if something certainly uh, changes from, from last year to this year. Suddenly we have a you know, significant increase in withholding taxes. You know, the next question is, are we getting credits for those? Is there a way to, you know, have the business operate differently to minimize those? Looking at the business a little bit more granularly, I think, um, helps set priorities. So as a smaller tax team, I'm more of a player coach. I have to be more engaged with each of my team members to see what what they're doing. But I I remember when when Todd joined Discovery, you probably don't remember this, but there was like four or five people sitting outside of your office and they're all like working the whole day to kind of figure something out and all these binders out. And Todd, you called me in the office and said, Jerry, can you find out what they're doing? And I went and it turns out they're working on a state and local issue that was worth like $1,000. Oh, yeah. And you called them in and you said, guys, what are you doing? You spent the entire day on something that, no, you actually said to them, how much is this worth? And they had no idea. They were just kind of like going down the rabbit hole without any understanding. 
One of the priorities that both of you have to deal with on a regular basis are cro- is cross-border tax work. Um, it's something that is becoming ever increasingly complicated. The rules seem to be changing frequently. How do you navigate tax issues across these multiple international jurisdictions and make decisions that affect your business when you're not an expert in these various countries? Well, you know, I, I think right now, looking across, you know, international tax planning, you know, the biggest challenge we face is instability in the system. Um, pillar two needs to get settled. I, I think it will. Pillar one and for our business, digital services taxes are, are, are a big wild card at this point. Um, and that's all understandable, right? I mean, the, the economy has evolved to a more digital economy. We're going through now the process of answering questions about how do you tax a digital economy. And so it makes sense, but it needs to get settled because it makes it very, very difficult. I think Pillar 2, I think, has enough form and shape at this point that, you know, we, we can, I think, you know, reasonably anticipate the impact it's going to have on our business and, and what we need to do about it. Right now, we're, I've just opened the project to look, you know, carefully at uh, – are we really ready for it in terms of internal processes, reporting? Do we have the data we need? So that's something that, that we're going to be looking very closely at in, in the coming months. And, and Todd, when you speak to management about th- these uncertainties, yeah. what time frame are you, are you looking at? I mean, I, and I used to say we think we could do this and this will last five to seven years or three to five years. What, what kind of time horizon can you, can you give the board? Well, you know, first of all, it's it's hard to tell them anything meaningful until you know, and I think it's only fairly recently that there's enough confidence, let's say, with Pillar 2, and not not only that it's going to happen, and what it's, but also what it's going to look like. Um, so there's not a lot of time left, you yeah. know, to, to give them a heads up about it. Uh, talking about digital services taxes, my personal view is, you know, that, that may very well be what we have to deal with, what that's going to mean, what it's going to mean financially, how we're going to, you know, have our systems comply uh, with, with these things. It's, it's, it's uh, very hard. Um, and you're, you're oftentimes not left with a lot of uh, time to, to go to management and tell them about this. So you have to really start thinking early about it. In terms of, you know, how long uh, you, can, you can expect uh, some stability in what we're going to get. I don't think there's anything. It's the change. The only, the only constant is change, as they say, right? And and I think the pace of change, especially now, is uh, is very high. And I think even when we get new structures in place, I think there's going to be years and years of those settling in and making adjustments um, and having you know countries conform, etc. So. I, I just don't I just think we're in a pl- we're in a state of change that is going to last for you know as far as I can see. Yeah, and thank you both for uh, joining us and uh, yeah, thank you. Appreciate your time. Right, it was great. fun. That was good. I felt like I was in jail every day when I was going to work. I'm like, I got to get out of here. My executive order calls on the FTC to ban or limit non-compete agreements. Let workers choose who they want to work for. This season on Uncommon Law, we're exploring one of the most expansive Federal Trade Commission proposals in modern history, a nationwide ban on non-compete clauses. Non-compete clauses can really restrict competition. They can be coercive. They can be exploitative. 
We'll talk to workers who were desperate to take new jobs in their industry, only to be blocked by threat of a lawsuit. I remember getting served my cease and desist and thinking that this can't be right, this can't be fair, how can she get away with this? And we'll talk to the business owners who say they depend on these clauses to keep their companies afloat. I think like with anything else, when you enter into an agreement, there are rules. And you decide if you want to participate in that or not. I just believe that there should be some protections for small businesses like myself that are already in a very competitive industry. Plus, does the FTC under chair Lena Khan even have the power to pass this rule? Look, Congress gave the FTC the authority to check unfair methods of competition. There is no limit to what Khan thinks she may be able to achieve if she can label it an unfair method of competition. Lena Khan is not coming out of nowhere. It really is the natural progression of the insights that we have about how harmful non-competes are on our markets. Join us as we explore the far-reaching implications of this proposal and the likely court battle that could shape the future of the American workforce. That's this season on Uncommon Law from Bloomberg Industry Group.